Good morning, Mosaic. How are we doing? Isn't it fun to praise God together? Oh, it's so good. One time, uh, Eric Klinger, one of our worship leaders, he told me as he's, as he's praying through the songs that he chooses, he, he carries it heavy because he says he's putting theology in our lips, our, in our mouths. And I just, I'm so thankful for the way that our worship leaders choose the songs because they help my heart speak what I don't know to say. Um, just great. I love being here. Uh, you guys are probably wondering what I'm doing uh, with this uh, dangerous weapon. The safety team is really wondering what I'm doing with this. Uh, if, if you never hear from me again, you'll know it was the safety team. Um, as I was studying the passage of scripture uh, today, I was, I was reminded of a few things. One of them was my dad. Uh, my dad is an avid, avid hunter. <laughs> avid hunters, do we got any avid hunters in here? You, you, yeah. You got to be careful because we're really close to Disney. And, and if you want to know who the villain was in Bambi, it was y'all who raised your hands. So just, I mean, just, I mean that's, that's not me. That's just Disney. But my dad loves to hunt. He grew up hunting with his brothers, with his dad. And so um, he wanted us to hunt. But one of, the, one of the ways that I think is just so easy to understand how deeply my dad loves to hunt. Uh, when my dad began to pick up bow hunting uh, on, a, on a much more dangerous uh, weapon than this, uh, with this compound bow, he needed to practice a lot. And because we, we lived up farther north, it gets really cold in the winter. And so he developed uh, an indoor uh, archery range in our house. Yeah, yeah. So, so here's what he did. So on the back porch, he hung a, a target, right? And then he opened the back porch door. And then just past that is the grand piano. And then just past that is the dining room table. Then just past that is the kitchen. Then just past that is the entryway. And then he would open the door. He would step outside the entryway and he would shoot through the entryway, through the kitchen, over the island, over the dining room table, over the grand piano, through the door and hit the target. It feels like one of those, those Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, McDonald's commercials when they're, they're playing a horse, one of the greatest Super Bowl commercials of all time. Uh, but, but that's what he would do. I mean, that's how passionate he was about training his ability so that when he saw the, um, the target in the wild, we'll do that. The target in the wild, he could hit it um, gently. Uh, and, and so like, I mean, just, but that's my dad. And so when he, when he was having kids, he just couldn't wait to have a boy because he wanted to have a man. He wanted to have a man that could hunt. And, and, then, and then he had me and he was like, I finally had a man and then, then it turned out to be me. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I'm, you know, hunting, not quite so much, but we did, we did, you know, we, we tried, we tried. Uh, I, I did a lot of hunting growing up. It just didn't take, I just didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't, I don't like to be cold. I don't like to get up early. I don't like to get, you know, all muddy and dirty and nasty, but, and that's what hunting requires. It, it just does. It's just the way that it is. But when I was growing up and I was learning some of these things, one of the deals I learned was to hunt or with a bow and arrow. And it started just at, at camp. And I went to this camp where they taught you how to shoot archery. And I remember when they were training you to shoot archery, there were a lot of rules 
There were a lot of safety precautions and there were a lot of techniques that they had to teach you so that you could do the thing, which is the point. What's the point when you're shooting archery? It's to hit the target. Yeah, that's the point. The whole point of all of the rules, all of the techniques, all of the training, it's so that you can hit the target consistently. And so I still remember, it's, it's amazing how much this stuff was ingrained in me. Uh, you know, you, you could imagine a bunch of six-year-olds uh, with, with a counselor trying to teach them how to shoot a bow and arrow for the first time. I just blessed the counselors because I can't imagine having eight or 10 six-year-old boys with, with a weapon for the very first time, you know, pointed all around. No, 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 no. But what we'd start with is we'd start with the command, strike a pose. And that's not to flex. Striking a pose is to put the tip of your bow on the tip of your shoe and then to hold it like that. Now, now this is not life size. You know, it'd be up there because uh, they were long bows. And so, you know, we were like Robin Hood. And so you, you just, you strike a pose. It's the first thing that you learn to do, strike a pose. Second thing is you knock an arrow. And in order to knock an arrow, what you do is you take the back tip of the arrow, which is the knock. It's got that little indentation and you put it on the string. Yeah, you put it, put it on that and you knock the arrow, and then you aim. <laughs> now, really, this thing, I was shot this morning. I shot this for the first time, and it can go. Anyway, you aim, and then when they tell you, then you fire. And then after a while, after the counselor feels comfortable with all the, the little six-year-olds shooting bows and arrows, he'll say, fire at will which was always bad for my friend Will because not, no one ever shot Will, but they always made the joke. Okay, everyone, fire at Will. And some people like would point at him and he's like, no. But as you're learning to shoot, there's a lot of stuff that you know, goes on. A lot of things that you have to learn, a lot of training that has to take place so that you can consistently hit the target. Now, could you hit the target without utilizing all of the proper techniques? Is it possible? Sure, yeah. But those techniques and that training is very helpful. And there are some techniques that are absolutely necessary. For instance, if you're not pointing or aiming at the target, you're not gonna hit the target, right? If the target was back there and I was pointed over here, I'm not going to hit the target. That is a necessary technique, right? Also, if I don't pull it back far enough to get enough power, it's not going to reach the target, right? So some of the techniques, some of the things that, that we're taught, some of the training that we went through is absolutely necessary to hit the target. And some of the things aren't necessary. They're just helpful. They're just good to do. And now you're thinking like, I mean, what's the, what's the big deal? You know, like, so what if you don't hit the target? Well, imagine if the scenario was a more important scenario. Imagine if, you know, you're one of the, you know, people who were around here before the Europeans came to this country and like their way of getting food was with a bow and arrow. And if, if they didn't hit the buffalo, their family starves, right? This is a big deal. It can be a very important thing. And then as you grow up, as I did, as I grew up, we moved from a bow to something even scarier, a BB gun, and then from a BB gun to a rifle and, and so on. And, and what happened was some of the rules, some of the techniques translated from gun to gun and from weapon to weapon, but some of them didn't, right? You didn't have a string that you're pulling back when you're shooting a rifle, but you still need to aim at the target, 
right? You, you, you still need to breathe appropriately. Right? There's a lot of things that translate, a lot of things that don't. And there's some very important things, safety things that you need to continue to keep in mind. Now, why am I talking about all this? Because I saw this at Walmart and I had to have it. Um, and, and this was a good excuse. No, there, it's because Paul is writing to his apprentice in the faith, Timothy, and he's giving him some instructions about the church. Just a little context in case you weren't here last week. Uh, last week, we began this uh, new book, which was a letter that was written by a very early church planting missionary to someone he had traveled around with for about 10 years and taught how to plant churches, how to disciple people, how to raise up and train up leaders, how to appoint elders. He had gone with Timothy all around uh, modern day Turkey and Macedonia and Greece planting churches. And then at some point in time, they go to this place called Ephesus together. It's a church that they were both a part of starting. And when you think of Ephesus, it was the most influential church for planting other churches in that day and age. So in your mind, think about what's the most influential church globally that you can think of. Maybe you're thinking of Hillsong. Maybe you're thinking of Life Church as campuses all over the place. But there are, there are a number of churches that are super influential. That would have been the church of Ephesus. It was the Mecca for, can you say I don't think you say Mecca for a church. It was the place where, where, where church planning was happening and training of church planners was happening and spreading out across the globe. But what had happened, as Paul had warned, there were some false teachers that had risen up in their midst and they were teaching false doctrine. And what had happened, that false doctrine had spread out into their community and they were misrepresenting Jesus to one another and to the world. And so Paul's with Timothy in Ephesus and he leaves Timothy there and says, I want you to handle this issue and I need to go on and do some other things. Now we believe that Paul wrote this letter from prison. And so he writes to Timothy and here's what he says in First uh, Timothy chapter three, verse 14. If you have the book of Timothy and you wanna look at it, maybe you have that journal or whatever it is, chapter three, verse 14, Paul writes why he is writing on this occasion. He says this, I hope to come to you soon. Paul would like to join Timothy in Ephesus, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul's writing so that Timothy would know and be reminded of all the things that he's taught him, all the things that he's trained him in, all the things that they've done together so that he and the people who are in the church of Ephesus, this highly influential church, will know how they should conduct themselves in the church. And Paul, he takes it up. First, he calls it the household of God. I don't know what you think about when you come to uh, Mosaic or wherever uh, you typically attend church on a Sunday morning. But Paul says, we, the church, are the household of God. And if you were a Jewish person at that time, you'd think of the temple, the place where all of Israel would come to worship. If you have a more pagan background, you might think of the temple of Zeus or, uh, you know, the temple, temple of uh, Epaphrodite or whoever, Right? The, the God that you worship, the place where everyone comes to give honor and respect and reverence to that God. Paul says, we 
are the household of God. And then he says, we are a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, buttress, I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. But buttress is like a foundational securing reality for something. And Paul says, this is what the church is. We are the place that is the foundational, protecting, sturdying reality for the truth. This is a big deal. Paul says, what you're doing, Timothy, is a big deal. Elders of Ephesus, what you're doing is a big deal. People of Ephesus, what you're doing matters. It matters greatly. You are representing the God of the universe. You're his household, his family, and you are securing the truth. It's a big deal. So how is Paul going to do this? How is he going to help Timothy, help these elders, help these people into what they need to know? Well, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And this is going to be the verse that we're going to key in on today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this, the aim of our charge is, what does it say? Love. The aim of our charge is love. Now, if we think about that in terms of a target, right? The target we're trying to hit is what? love. But it's not just love. It's love that comes from a certain place. It comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says, before I get into the rest of this letter, where I'm addressing the false teachings, where I'm addressing the behavior that is not in line with the way of Jesus, the ways that you're misrepresenting God, the way that you're disrupting this community, before I get into all of these things, I want to make sure that you know that you are clear that there is an aim, that there is a foundational reality that we have to continue to come back to. And that is the aim of our charge or the aim of our commission is love. The Greek word for the aim is telos. And telos is the designed end for something. What is the designed end goal for humanity? What is the designed end goal for the church? What is the designed end goal for the people of God? Paul says the designed end goal for us is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, Paul is standing in the footsteps of Jesus here in the way that he shares this stuff because Jesus says something very similar. Jesus is asked by a Pharisee and a Pharisee would have been a person who was super familiar with and passionate about God's law. They were so passionate about God's law that they added other laws to make sure that we didn't disobey God's laws. In the Torah, or the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, there were 613 or 611, depending on how you count them, commandments. And the Pharisees added on 1,500 other rules and regulations just to make sure that no one broke any of God's laws. It would be like if, if this was a line and they said, don't cross this line, Brady, and that's like God's law. The Pharisees backed it up like 10 feet and said, don't cross this line. Because if I don't cross this line, then there's no way I'm going to cross that line. So this is a guy who is passionate about everybody obeying all of God's commandments, each and every single one of God's commandments, right? That's his background. Matthew chapter 22, it says this. It says, and one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. And he said this, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
And Jesus said to them, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, this guy asked Jesus for how many commands? One, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave him how many? Two. Now, why did Jesus give extra? Why didn't Jesus just stick with one? Because what Jesus was doing, he was entering in into a hotly debated topic. Everyone agreed what the greatest commandment was. Deuteronomy 6, 4, love the Lord your God, heart, heart soul, mind, right? That's, that's everybody agreed upon that. But number two was highly debated and people were passionate about it. And Jesus voluntarily enters into this hotly debated topic. And I, I bet you could imagine there are a number of hotly debated topics in our culture right now. Just imagine one of those and think, this is what Jesus was voluntarily stepping into. I often try and stay out of those things. I, I try not to post. I try not to talk about those things. This is Jesus voluntarily stepping into it. Because Jesus obviously believed, he said the second is like it, or the second is connected to it. That they are integrally connected Love of God and love of people are connected. You cannot fully love God without loving people and you cannot really love people without loving God. And Jesus goes into this because he thinks this is so important because this is the aim of our charge. This is the telos or the end goal for which we were created to love God and to love people. And he says, in fact, to a Pharisee, mind you, in fact, all of the law, 613, commandments and the prophets, all of the, the books after that, they are, they hang on these two commandments. If you love God and love people, you've fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. If you love God and you love people, you're obeying all of the commandments. If you truly love God and love people, then you don't need all of those 1500 other rules and regulations. This was a pretty bold move, but he said it because it was so important. It's so important. Paul says it like this to a different church, the church of Corinth. He says this, 1 Corinthians 13, verse one. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and let's just real quick, who here can speak multiple languages? That is impressive. That's impressive. I don't know how many years I spent trying to learn other languages and I, I'm weak at best. I, it's, it's very difficult, but how useful is it when you're in another cultural context where their native tongue is different than yours for you to be able to speak their language? It's super beneficial. It's incredibly useful. It's way better than American coming into another country and just saying louder in English what they want, right? Right, because that works. So we just get louder. So being able to speak multiple languages, that's a good thing. Being able to speak in the tongues of angels that's a good thing. It's incredible. Paul says, okay, if I could do these two incredible things, but not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Who here has a, a growing drummer in the household? You know what Paul's talking about, right? When, when you just hear a cymbal hit over and over and over and over and over, it's nice at the end of a song because then we know to clap. But after that, it just starts to hurt your ears. It's loud and annoying, Right? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I can speak eloquently languages of humans and angels, 
But if I don't have love, the sound I make is just this nasty, noisy, annoying, ringing sound. He goes on. He says this, and if I have prophetic powers, are prophetic powers a good thing? Yep. And if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, would that be a good thing? Yes. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, good thing? Paul says, okay, if I have these incredible things, prophetic powers, knowledge, and faith, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have, is generosity good? And I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, I can have the gift of being able to speak in all kinds of different languages, human and divine. I can have the gift of faith and knowledge and prophetic powers. I can be unbelievably generous so that I give everything away. But if I don't have love, I am and I gain nothing. The aim of our charge is love. And this matters. This is huge. I cannot overstate how important it is that we understand at the core of our being that the end goal, the telos for us as humans, as followers of Jesus is that we would love God and love people. Jesus goes so far as to say, this is how people will know you are my followers, by your love for one another. That's the way that people know we follow and love Jesus, by our love for one another. Now, what is this love that Jesus is talking about? Because in our day and age, we use the word love a lot, right? We throw the word around a lot. We say it so much, it basically means nothing, right? Because anything and everything could be love. And we just use it so often, it's lost its depth of meaning. So what I want to talk about is what is this biblical love that Paul is talking about? This biblical love that Jesus is talking about it. In fact, let's call it biblical divine love. It's characterized in this Greek word agape. Many of you have probably heard it before. The word agape, it's a powerful word. It's a weighty word. It sets the bar for love very high. Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. He says, love is patient. Why did he have to start with that one? I mean, right off the bat, I'm disqualified from this kind of love. Patience is always hard because as soon as it's not hard anymore, it's not patience, right? It's something different. Love is patient. And then he says, love is kind. And kindness is really easy until you have to be patient. And then it's really hard. How easy is it to be kind when you're having to be patient with someone? Not very easy. I don't know why, but kind words aren't what come to my mind when I'm having to be patient. Other words than that come to my mind. Other godly words, just not kind ones. It says love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Oh, that's basically what my life is about, right? I mean, my life is basically about my own way. It's about what I think is right because I am right most of the time. Almost always, in fact. In fact, there, well, there was this one time where I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't wrong. I was actually right. And I was wrong about being wrong because I was really right. See, and if I'm right all the time, then shouldn't we all do it my way, right? 
I obviously have the correct way to load the dishwasher. Why don't we all do that? Right? It is fact. I do it appropriately. So we should all do it my way. Right? And everything in my life I've thought through and I do it the right way. So we should all do things my way. But love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't say accept when you're right. It just says love does not insist on its own way. It says it's not irritable or resentful. Oh, there go a few of us. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It never fails. That's a high bar for us to be created for the end goal of agape, of divine biblical love. Jesus takes it up a notch. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's not just that you love one another. It's that you love one another as Jesus has loved us. That's a pretty big deal. You can imagine the disciples sitting around the table and thinking, oh, we got to love each other. We can't just tolerate each other. And think about this. If you've ever read the list of disciples, you know it was hard for them to get along. It was difficult for them to love one another. You think of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You could not have been more polar politically. You could not have been. It would be impossible. Think about the most left-leaning person and the most right-leaning person you can. And think about Jesus choosing them to, to walk with him and be together with him in discipleship. And them sitting around a table together and Jesus saying, you must love one another. You look at the disciples, some of them were very difficult to love. Just like me. Ask many people that know me. There are times when I'm very difficult to love. And you can't just love me. You have to love me the way that Jesus has loved you. That's a big deal. And then he gives an example. He says this, greater love is no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. Biblical divine love is this. Self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. Divine biblical agape love is self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. This is the aim of our charge. This is the end goal for which God created us. It's why he gathered around his church so that we would self-sacrificially give ourselves for the good of everyone else. That's what we're called to do. So let's say this together because this is our telos. This is our end goal. Self-sacrificially, Self-sacrificially, giving of yourself for the good of the other. That's our telos. Self-sacrificially giving of ourselves for the good of the other. That's the end goal, the aim of our charge, the foundational reality for which we were created and invited in. That's how the world will know we follow Jesus. Now that's a big bar. That's a high bar. I can't tell you how many times I've transgressed that and not achieved love like that. Just yesterday, uh, I had a great 
conversation with my wife where um, I was reminded of how I did not do that. And she was right. I did not. I was not loving my wife. I was not putting her first. I was not serving her. I was serving myself. I was serving my own needs, right? I was doing the things that I wanted. It's tough. How do we do this? When you look at the story that God lays out in scripture, you begin to see the way that this works. In the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God lays out two choices for the humans that are there. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of knowledge. And in order to eat from the tree of life, you have to bypass what? The tree of knowledge. Now, is knowledge a good thing? Yes. In fact, it's an important thing. It's a necessary thing. We can't live without any sort of knowledge. So if we're going to bypass knowledge to receive life, we're going to have to trust God to give us what we need to know when we need to know it. That's the choice before Adam and Eve. It's, will you trust me and receive life from me? Or will you insulate yourself from having to trust and gain knowledge, grab knowledge for yourself. Because what God desires from us and with us and for us is intimacy and maturity. He desires a deeply personal relationship with us as humans. That's what God wants from us and for us. And he wants to see us walk into greater maturity. And so he demonstrates this throughout scripture. One of the ways that we see this is in the story of the Old Testament, particularly in the last half of Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, Got an Exodus Bible study going on right now. It's great. You should be a part of it. But if you just sat down and you read through the last half of Exodus and then the book of Leviticus, first of all, high five, because that's amazing. Those are tough books to get through. But the last half of Exodus through Leviticus, you'll see this pattern emerge. God gives 10 commandments. And then right after that, the people rebel. And so God gives some more laws and more commandments. And then right after that, the people rebel. And then God gives some more commandments and then the people rebel. And then God gives some more commandments and the people rebel. And what you see is that more information, more laws, more commands don't produce the end goal, the telos. They don't produce intimacy and maturity. They don't produce peoples whose hearts are shaped by divine love. Now, Are the rules that God gave, the commands that God gave bad? Are they bad? No, they're good and they're beneficial and they're beautiful. But the way that Paul talks about them is he says, they are a schoolmaster that are useful for a time, for a season. They were a schoolmaster and he uses a word that talks about a kid who has a teacher for a time until they've reached the maturity to where they don't need that schoolmaster anymore. Paul says the law is good. But what happens at a certain point, more rules stunt maturity and they insulate from intimacy. Think about this. Many of us in here are parents. And I'm guessing the way that you parent is that at first, when a kid is young, you have lots of rules. Lots and lots of rules. I remember my sister, uh, when she was raising her son, Jack, uh, she, she used this method or technique uh, called that's a stop. I don't know. So what she would do is she would take Jack and she would point at something and she'd say, that's a stop. Meaning 
don't go here, don't look at that, don't touch it, don't come near it. And then, and she would say, oh, now that's a stop. So he would know what things are off limits. And I remember one time we went to my grandmother's house and she picked up Jack, she took him around the room and she said, I guarantee it to every item in the room, that's a stop, 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 and that's a stop. Everything for you is dangerous. Everything for you is off limits, right? When you're younger, there are a lot of rules. But as you get older, there are less and less rules, right? As your kid gets older, parents, you give them less and less rules because you've, you've hoped that the life that you've demonstrated for them, the life that you've uh, shown them, the rules that you've given them have developed them into a certain kind of person so that they don't need all the rules anymore, right? Because you hope that you have so implemented your character in them, your mind in them, they can now live their life as a mature adult without all of the rules that they had under your roof. It doesn't always work out so well, but that's the hope, right? That's the goal. That's what we're longing for. And what we see in scriptures is one, is we can't obey the rules anyways, right? right? We, more rules don't produce maturity. And then secondly, they also can insulate us from intimacy. Because when you have a lot of guidelines, if you had, let's say, all the guidelines, you would never need to talk to the source of the guidelines, right? right? If God gave us all of the information from the beginning, we'd never need to talk to God. Doesn't mean we wouldn't, but we don't need to. And God in his kindness gives us a wide range to, to, to roam so that we can continue to approach him, continue to run to him, continue to ask him to realize our need for God. Just like the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, it requires a lot of trust. Paul says the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love, but he doesn't stop there. He says it's love that isn't disconnected from who you are. It's love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And if we learn anything in our own lives or through the pages of Scripture, it's that humans need help there, right? It's not just that I act loving. It's that, no, 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 God wants me to actually become loving, it's not just that I'm supposed to act patient. It's that I'm supposed to become patient. How's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? We look at the, the book of Jeremiah. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah. He says this in chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says with this new covenant that we know comes through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, that this covenant is a covenant where God puts his heart in our hearts. He writes his law on our heart. In Ezekiel, he says it this way, chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone 
from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That we as humans who are bent towards rebellion against God, more rules won't make the change that is necessary happen. So God has to give us a brand new heart. He's got to write his law on our hearts. We have to have hearts that are shaped by his law, the law that Jesus gives us, love of God and love of people. Because that's the end for which God has created us for. Love of God and love of people. Self-sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of the other. And God said, I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to transform your heart. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give us a heart that has the capacity to love. He gives himself to us to guide us along the way. The way that Paul says it in Romans chapter five, verse five, he says this, God's love, his agape, his divine biblical self-sacrificially giving of self for the good of the other. He, he has poured that love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Every follower of Jesus has been given the Spirit of God. Every follower of Jesus has the Spirit of God inside them. So God has poured his love into us through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And he walks with us along the way. Here's the way that I, that I see it and understand it today. Who remembers the time when you used to drive places and the only way you knew how to get there was to pull out your giant 50 states map and look at it? You guys remember that? Okay, I did a lot of driving back in the day where that was the way that you did it. This was the way. And you know, I, I love that, you know, texting and driving is awful. Don't text and drive. But I think, how come there weren't laws against reading a map and driving? Because I'd be driving on the highway, 55, because the speed limit wasn't 70 yet, 55, and I would have the map out on the steering wheel trying to figure out how to navigate my way to this new place that I'd never been before. And then I remember what happened is MapQuest came out. You guys remember MapQuest came out? Love me some MapQuest. Because what you did is you went to your computer with the CRT monitor, no flat screens back then, and then you would, you would type in the destination and then you would type in your location and it would print out for you every detail of the trip that you needed to know. It would say, you're gonna drive 0.6 miles and then you're gonna turn left on this highway and then you're gonna drive you know, 5.7 miles and you're gonna turn right on this highway. And, and, and you knew every detail from the beginning what you're gonna need to do. So if you were gonna travel, I don't know, let's say from Orlando to Los Angeles, you would have 36 pages of printed documents of every detail you needed to know from the beginning. And don't we love that? Don't we love having every single detail laid out from the beginning where there's no mystery, where it doesn't require any sort of trust? See, that's what we want, but that's not how God works. It's a little bit more like this. It's a little bit more like this scenario. God says, hey, I want you to go to the West Coast. How, how am I supposed to know I'm going the right direction? Just make sure the sun is rising behind you and setting in front of you. What? Okay, okay. And then I'm gonna give you the journals of a bunch of people that have gone from the East Coast to the West Coast before you. Let me give you their journals, the things that they saw and the things that they experienced, the things that they found were helpful, the things that they found that were harmful, the things that they said, do this, and things that they said, stay away from to kind of help you on your way. And I'm not just going to stop there. I'm going to give you this watch. I have this watch and this watch is connected to my phone. And when I use my GPS, 
my watch vibrates every time I need to pay attention to the GPS. Whenever there's a turn coming up, it vibrates and says, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. God gives us this, this watch in our hearts that vibrates every time we need to pay attention. Now, we don't always listen to the Spirit of God in our hearts telling us to pay attention when we need to pay attention, but it gives us this. And then he surrounds us with a caravan of other cars going the same direction, who also know they're going there, who also have the journals from people in the past, who also have the Spirit of God inside of them. And we go together and God says, I just want you to to make sure that you know the aim of our charge, it's love. And it issues from a person who has been transformed by the supernatural power of the spirit of God working in them by the gift of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. Remember the aim of our charge is love. Now the church of Ephesus that Paul is writing to to, through Timothy is a cautionary tale. And it's actually really sad about 25, 30 years after Paul writes this letter, Jesus writes a letter to this church through John. And here's what he writes to the church of Ephesus. He says this, Revelation chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. This is what the letter of 1 Timothy is about. There are false teachers in their midst that are causing damage and wreaking havoc in their community and their reputation for Jesus. And Jesus writes to them and says, hey, you got rid of them. Right? You don't bear with those people that are false. You don't bear with false apostles. You don't bear with it. You don't hold, you don't, you don't do that, right? Way to go. All of the things that Paul writes later, it's like you got those things. But then he says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You missed the point. You had a lot of the details right, but you missed the point. You had a lot of the techniques, right? You had your arms straight. You pulled the bow back far enough, but you missed the target. You abandoned the love, the end for which I created you to exist, self-sacrificially giving yourself for the good of the other. You missed it. Love of God and love of people. You abandoned the love that you had at first men and women, may this not be God's indictment against us. May we not do all the things right and miss the foundational reality for which God has gathered us. That we would love one another as Jesus has loved us, giving himself up for us, demonstrating that to one another so the world knows that we follow Jesus. It's incredible the way that Jesus phrases this. He says, the love that you had at first. And if you connect this to the scriptures, you know that we love because God first loved us. That our first love is the divine love of God that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That the first love is a gift from God. 
It's the new heart of flesh with love of God and love of people written on it, given to us by God. It's the spirit of God who has been walking us into maturity. Our first love is the self-sacrificial love of God. Our first love is the love that's been given to us, the love demonstrated in Jesus when he gave up his life for our life. And we sang this song talking about all these things that Jesus took on so that we could have the other things, that he died so that we could have life. He went into darkness so that we could have light. That's the first love, the epic love of God given to us for our good, for his glory at great cost to himself. Mosaic, may we be a church who in response to, not having to earn, but in response to what God has already done on our behalf, that we would live out love of God and love of people, never forgetting that that's the aim of our charge. As we continue to study the book of Timothy, there are gonna be a number of things that Paul teaches, that God commands, and we're gonna connect it back to love of God and love of people. Some of the things are easily translated into our context and some of the things are not easily translated into our context. And we'll get to do that work together. But may we never forget that the aim, the end goal for which God created us is love that comes from a place of someone transformed by love himself, Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you that we are forgiven and free. God, thank you that you have given us your love through your Holy Spirit, that you have poured it into our hearts. I pray that we would not forsake that first love. I pray that as we seek to get the details right, as we seek to implement healthy techniques, that we would never forget the point is agape, the love of Jesus, self-sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of one another. Help us to be a church that that is our reputation amongst one another, but also amongst the world. We can't do it on our own. We need you. Spirit of God, we need you. We need you to continue to pour out that love, to, to transform our hearts, to bring us into maturity so that we might love your law appropriately. God, we need you. We need you. We need you. So we ask these things in the powerful and beautiful and epic name, Jesus. Amen.